Rod, what's happening, man? I want to talk about my email send delay. Mm, 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 preach. This is preach. You know, on Outlook, actually, probably almost any mailer application, you can delay how fast your emails go out when you hit the yeah. send button. So I've got like a 17. I keep I keep making it longer. I think I'm at 17 oh, wow. minutes you now on my delay. One. I got two minutes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, two. Just two. What's your? Is yours for like typos? And Mine is for anger emails. For all so you of can it. Send them. Like, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've I've hit send and go, oh crap, and then I go back and I change it. But then there are those moments where you're like, I need to yell at this person, and I need to feel good about it. And the only way I feel good about it is by hitting send, and then I can delete it. You ever forget to no. delete it? You. I don't do fire email. I don't, uh, what do they call them? Uh, burn, burn after reading or I, like, I don't send and, and mission impossible emails. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't do that. I just keep it in my head, which is probably worse, but, uh, and I, I don't do the typo thing either. So why do you have it? I check my email at a certain time, every certain times throughout the day. And then mm-hmm. I want to respond without people responding back to me unless it's urgent. And I have a way to bypass it unless it's urgent. I don't want people to respond because then I'll stay in my email inbox and I'm trying to stay Mm. out of my email application and doing things. So it's really, it's helped me. Great representation of multiple use cases. Use cases. Look at that. We're dropping use cases for email. (laughs) We're we're about to become an email email tips podcast. Hit us for your use cases. Welcome to or welcome back to More in Common. This is our social experiment. See, everyone has a story that can help us learn from one another. And we bring people into this safe space that we have learned to create so we can learn about their stories and get into difficult topics that challenge us in conversation and ultimately how we think. And we have a lot of these conversations and we're seeing a lot of similar threads through all of them. So what we're doing is breaking down these conversations to create a set of tools and a map that'll help you become a conversation boss so that you can be a catalyst for conversation in your day-to-day life. All right, so I got to do it. I got to push you out to moreincommonpod.com. That's our website to find all of the goodness that is more in common. And, and definitely use that to give us feedback, share, evangelize more in common if you're selling all of that. We appreciate appreciate that you do it already. And you know, of course, we continue to ask you to do so. Bum, 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 bum. So last week we had Tristan on, or was it last week? Two weeks ago. What you what you take out of that conversation? Two practical things that I took away from Max. Actually, versus the ethereal or uh, the, the the conversational components is just decision making. How she had the example of the boyfriend in high school flipped a coin, like just so you could get a sense of what your instinct, like what you truly want to do. I've actually used it a lot in helping other people make decisions and making decisions myself. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is the the breathing exercises, the 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 four the four things in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, name four things, touch four things, hear four things, and then name what you feel to reactivate your prefrontal cortex. Like I use it when I start to feel a little bit anxious about something and I can't control it. I can't bring it back. Like breathing's not working or whatever. And it's actually really, really helpful. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that I just try to use regularly. What I loved most, it was so conversational. So even if we were coming at something from different baselines of understanding like personal philosophy like the conversation never seemed like there was contention or conflict it was a navigation and it was an enjoyment and it was just it was a lot of fun how about you uh she's very very focused on the positive and not in a 
overly cheerful, annoyingly like, hey, everything's awesome kind of way. But it was a just a very... Everything is awesome. Which is true. She just very intentionally called out the positive and just didn't give the negative any time, I guess, is the way I would put it. Um, just through some of her answers, things she didn't say, things she did say, and how she reframed it back to positive things. Um, uh, that was a small thing that I caught. And then the three gates, you got to pass through before you can speak. Is it is it true? Is it kind? And is it necessary? And uh, been trying to apply that to my life a lot since we originally talked to her. And then since doing the episode again, it kind of refreshed it like, oh, hey, I got to get back on this. And it's a difficult for me. And uh, I do find myself speaking less. I think my parents kind of got it with, uh, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. It's a, a version of it that maybe leaves out. Necessary. Yeah, it kind of leaves out. Yeah, because you might need to say something. Um, you just got to reframe it nice. so that it's nice. No, I think, and it's it's such a powerful um, sentiment because it's actionable, mm -hmm. right? Like it's something you can, oh, I may think something's nice that someone else might not think is nice, so don't say it, right? Like how do you navigate that? Where is this? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is really? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, all right. So, this week we have Rachel. Yeah, Rachel Gorham. She is an advanced practice registered nurse. Uh, she's double board certified and holds uh, national certifications as a woman's health nurse practitioner and in advanced uh, genetic nursing. She has a specialty in women's health, gynecological oncology, cancer risk assessment, hereditary cancer syndromes, cancer genetics, managing and developing high-risk breast cancers, and cancer prevention. Uh, she recently contributed to women's health in primary care and integrated approach, the breast health chapter. And she's a national keynote speaker for Merck and Myriad Genetics. So, with all that, I, I mean, you can imagine what we talked about. Uh, what do we talk about? We talk about hereditary cancer and some of its symptoms yeah. and how to find it and how she, all the work she does around it. There's a lot of fascinating stuff there. Um, talk about surviving cancer. We talk about HPV, human papillomavirus. We get into a whole bunch of different things. So, topic-wise, this is pretty rich. Uh, anything you want to point people to directly? I think one thing that I like to call out in this episode that really hit me as it relates to conversational practice is the listening component, right? Um, everybody, but especially you and I, because this is a topic that's not comfortable. Like, we don't know anything about it. So, just sat back and listened, contributed as necessary. And when we did, she sat back and listened. And I just, I think it's really important to call out because it, it may go overlooked mm. is the listening component to the conversation. Um, so, you know, that I just want to call out for this episode. And I uh, definitely hope you enjoy it and take a lot away from Rachel. She's awesome. Um, you know, the Healing Hands was created based on God being the ultimate um, healer. I'm just his hands. Um, so I feel like Christ works through me every day as far as when I'm sometimes talking to a patient, like, you know, just things come through through me that um, I come to a diagnosis quickly. And I think there's science and there's art of medicine. I think the art of medicine also has to come into that faith base. It adds another layer to that provider. looking at a small town life and was just like, I don't want this for myself. I don't want to struggle. I don't want to, um, yeah, I don't want to ever have my daughter go through the childhood that I had. Um, because you know, I, I just, I wanted more for her and I wanted to set that example for her. So when I, 
father, certain teachers when I was younger. Just was my, honestly, it just fueled my fire. Like, I really love if somebody tells me I can't accomplish something because all I want to do is just turn around and give them the middle finger and just keep going. Today, we are with Rachel Gorham. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Magic. Wonderful. Thanks for asking. Great to be here with you. Great. Me too. <laughs> so, so Rachel, one of the many amazing things that you do, because you're, you're fairly well-rounded and incredibly ambitious in all of the things that you do. I don't know how you do it. Um, but one of them is National Keynote Speaker for Merck and Myriad Genetics. Yes. Now... In that, you spend a lot of time on the hereditary cancer sim- symptoms. So, what what is that, and like, what's your focus around it? So, um, I have been a national keynote speaker since 2013 uh, for Myriad Laboratories and Genetics. So, as far as for Myriad goes, um, my focus is on hereditary cancer. So, hereditary breast cancer, about 5 to 10% of the breast cancer that's diagnosed every year is from hereditary forms, meaning that that woman was born with a chromosome, a gene essentially, that was defective or silent or what we call a mismatch gene. Um, so that woman is predisposed to developing breast cancer at a much younger age. Um, and so typically when a woman presents with a family history uh, to their clinician, we should be addressing that family history. And then if patients meet a certain what's called NCCN criteria, um, guideline criteria, then those patients get tested to see if potentially they do carry a genetic mutation that can predispose them to developing cancer. So for Myriad Laboratories, I travel all across the country and just um, I'm a national speaker. So I talk about um, how do we integrate this into practice? Uh, how do you screen? How do you test? How do you manage these patients? And then sometimes I'll just do community talks and just letting the community know that, you know, family history is really important to kind of dive into and collect. Because uh, I think that uh, cancer is something that a lot of families, it's an elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about it. So uh, this kind of bringing up that question that we do need to talk about it because we have the power to essentially you know, we're, we're looking for a breast cancer cure, they keep saying, but I really feel like we've already found the cure for breast cancer. It's looking at a family history of cancer right. and actually preventing the cancer from forming to begin with. Does, does, um, so like what goes into that? Does epigenetics, is that a part of the conversation and gene expression or is it just knowing your risk factors and not doing things that, that are going to make the gene more likely to exp- the mutated or the wrong gene likely to express or how do, how do, how do you talk people through that you know with patients it's um it's a very simplified conversation because if you really get into the ins and outs of how these genes work and uh, the, the genealogy sometimes you get the deer in the headlight look that they're just it's way over their heads so for sure. me when i'm counseling patients you know i let them know that you know, based on your family history that you've described to me, you potentially are at an increased risk for having a genetic mutation. Um, the ones that I would say patients have heard most about is BRCA1 and 2. Um, Angelina Jolie was diagnosed with BRCA2. And so she created what's called the Angelina Jolie movement, where patients were flooded into their providers saying, you know, I have a concerning family history as well. And then all of these patients started to, you know, to become tested and then found that they also could 
have a mutation. Uh, the prevalence that you have a mutation is 1 in 300 to 1 in 500 that, uh, patients that are tested that will have a mutation. Um, and so what I do is just let them know you could be predisposed based on your family history that there could be a, a gene that you have been passed down. They're autosomal dominant, which means that if you're... Um, they don't skip a generation, so it's a 50% transmission from potentially mother to child or offspring. Um, and so then at that point, I have my nurse uh, draw the patient's blood. We send it out to the laboratory, uh, Myriad Genetics that I use, and we look at 29 genes, um, and every single one of those genes is attached with a medical management. So in about two weeks, we get the results back, and then I you know, have the patient come in, and we talk about, you know, do you have the gene? Yes or no. If you do, then we go down a treatment plan together and we prevent them from getting cancer. Or if they don't have the mutation, then I still look at that family history and change medical management based on that family history. So for example, that woman may not wait till 45 to, go, to start screening mammograms. She might need to start at 40 or even 30. Right. So we still we still look at the family history and then modify management based on that. Now... With this information, like, so you said 5 to 10% of breast cancer mm -hmm. um, has a genetic marker, right? Correct. So, how is that data, does that data exist for other forms of, of cancer or is breast cancer just your primary focus? Breast cancer is my primary. So, it's called, it's a syndrome. It's called breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. Okay. So, it's an actual syndrome. So, I focus on that syndrome as well as I focus on the syndrome called Lynch syndrome. Um, and Lynch syndrome is also very similar prevalence to hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. So, they're almost identical. They just affect different, uh, different cancers. So, Lynch syndrome, for example, those patients are at risk for uh, uterine cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer, and then multiple associated cancers. So that's kind of my focus is very much breast, ovarian, uterine, colon, melanoma, pancreatic, prostate. So, you know, those are kind of the cancers that I focus on. What kind of things um, do, do can people do to prevent it from actually occurring? You mentioned... Um, that's some of the things that you sit down with people and talk about. Obviously, there's the medical medical care, but are there other things that, that are important to the discussion? So, yeah, when you look at risk factors, a woman with a mutation is going to trump all other risk factors. So, if you have, a, let's say, a BRCA mutation, you have a tenfold increased risk relative risk that you are going to develop breast cancer. So, we know that about 50% of women with a BRCA mutation will develop breast cancer before the age of 50. So that's when a lot of medical management actually changes for that woman is about 10 years prior. So let's say this woman has a BRCA1 mutation. Um, if she has a BRCA1 mutation, she has a 87% um, lifetime risk that she's going to develop breast cancer in her life. Wow. Um, and so when we look at general population, one in eight women will develop breast cancer in their lifetime. So, you know, that's an a, extremely elevated risk. Um, but also her risk of ovarian cancer, less than 1% of the population develops ovarian cancer. However, if a woman has a BRCA1 mutation, her lifetime risk goes up to 44%. Um, so when I talk to these women, it depends on where she's at. All my patients are unique and I develop a treatment plan that's unique to each patient that sees me. So if I have a woman who's 
finished childbearing and she's, you know, done breastfeeding and she's, let's say, 40 years old, I'm going to discuss three different options with her. Number one is what's called chemo prevention, which is putting that patient on a medication like a, a endocrine therapy, for example, like tamoxifen. Um, that woman, we know that tamoxifen can essentially reduce the risk of developing breast cancer by 53%. So sometimes they put her on medication. Uh, some patients, they would, let's say this is that 40 year old, she would get a mammogram and an MRI every year on her, uh, on her breast tissue. Um, or that woman also is offered a surgical intervention, which is a prophylactic, uh, bilateral mastectomy with, um, some women can have immediate reconstruction. Um, and so some women choose that option because, you know, we do nipple sparing mastectomies now. So they save the nipple and the areola and they get that immediate reconstruction. And so it's a, you know, that can reduce the risk of developing breast cancer. Nothing is 100%, but they say greater than 90%. So, um, you know, there's lots of things that we can do, like I said, to either watch her closer. So if something does come up, we're going to catch it early mm. um, or reduce the risk with surgery. Now, how do... Oh, go ahead, Randy. Well, I was going to just on the testing side of things. What do you what do you think about like 23andme and um ancestry.com? Mm-hmm. What's your what's your take on those? Or do you have So 23andme is um you know, it's gotten a lot of a lot of media attention, I would say. Um the FDA is still kind of looking at that company for sure. They shut, them, they shut them down for a while. Yeah, you have to look at validity. So when you look at laboratories, it's really important when you're choosing laboratories, a clinician, um, to look at the sensitivity of the test. The last thing that you want to do is tell a patient that she has a genetic mutation when she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it's so important to make sure you're going through a certain lab um, that that can provide that information. Um, and so, and, and also, I you know, ancestry is is different than like let's say 23andMe. I think it's so important for patients to sit down with somebody who is trained in genetics to actually have these conversations because if a woman comes up with a BRCA mutation, like I just said, one of the recommendations is removing the breast tissue. That is something that I you need to kind of let the patients know what we're looking for and what what could happen if you do have that. Like this is a really big deal. And not only for her, but if she has children, there's a 50% chance it will be passed down to her child. So, you know, when we look at 23andMe, it's a, it's some options that patients will choose, but Insurance covers genetic testing now through a clinician and through laboratories. 97% of the time, patients pay zero out of pocket because of the Affordable Care Act. So it's not something that patients are paying for like they used to pay for, you know, 10 years ago. So there's really no reason why they wouldn't go through a laboratory that would say more sensitive of a test um, because I think they're worried about the financial burden when that's really not even an issue anymore. Does you think... All doctors are as willing to provide the access to those tests as say you are. Um, being a, a national speaker and speaking to providers, you know, all of the time, I definitely think that um, it's something that they feel a little bit uncomfortable with as far as um, sometimes having the conversations with patients or, you know, bringing it up when they screen, when they collect a family history, they already have so many other things they're addressing that day and a patient reports her family history. It's part of the standard of care. We should be addressing that family history, but a lot of times it just kind of gets collected and brushed over. Um, we don't really take the time to dissect the family history like we should because we know family history does predict so many different cancers. Um, but I think that the management as well, if you test this patient and they come back with a mutation, some providers are like, 
oh my goodness, now I have to tell this patient she might have to remove her breasts. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's sometimes a, it's a, it's a big, um, you, you know, it's a lot of information, but you know, there's been so many organizations across the country that are trying to train providers and having the discussion and how do you incorporate it into practice and how do you take care of those patients appropriately? Because, you know, I've seen the, the good and the bad of this gene. And I have seen when providers have, for example, I had a patient who had reported she was younger, she was early 30s, but she had reported to her clinician multiple times that she um, had breast pain and breast pain and breast pain. And she told them her extensive family history and it was completely overlooked on multiple occasions. By the time the patient got to me, Number one, I genetically tested her, but by the time she had already gotten to me, she already had stage four breast cancer. Mm, So, and she came up with a genetic mutation and she also had two very young children. So she had a very long, tough road down, you know, ahead of her. And who knows if she was even going to be there to raise her children. So if we would have looked at her family history before she developed cancer two years prior, we could have then prevented her. We would have been able to identify the gene put something in place and prevent her from ever having to go down the road of stage four diagnosis of cancer. Um, so that is where I kind of lie on the spectrum is that, you know, we're, there's no reason for a patient to ever develop cancer who has a genetic mutation. If that happens, I feel like as clinicians, we have failed that patient because most likely they've been, um, you know, discussing their family history with multiple clinicians between primary care and all the clinicians that they see, GYN. And we haven't done anything about it. So kind of the the slogan I would say that I use a lot when I'm speaking is treat family history like a symptom. If somebody comes in for a cold, you're going to collect the symptoms, you're going to diagnose it, and you're going to treat it. Why are we collecting a family history if we're not doing anything about it? Right, so that's the point. Th- I mean, right. So that's kind of where, where I fall on the spectrum. Um, and because I really tell my patients I can't medically manage you unless I know this information, I wouldn't be putting her on the right birth control. I wouldn't be giving her the right surgical options. So it's just, um, it's, it's just the right thing to do. Does, so I, I need to clarify, um, a broken, a, a dissonance in my brain right now. Does twenty three and me and ancestry actually report genetic mutations back to you? No. So well, n- so uh, from my experience with twenty three and me, they don't. They will report a probability. Yes, it's um, on a probability. And then a probability, and then like for me, I use Prometheus. Like there are other sites that will take your genetic results and map those with. Um, medical data mm-hmm. and findings and saying, hey, you have this gene and you have this gene, that means you have some sort of a risk for sensitivity to caffeine. I'm just using that. But they also yeah. go through things like um, likelihoods for cancer and whatnot. And then there's like 400, I don't know, there's like, I was just on the site earlier today checking it. I think there were like 16 checkboxes saying, I understand that this is not a diagnosis. <laughs> like, because mm. they're taking the test from 23andMe and applying your genetic material, your genetic data to say, here are some probabilities based on current medical research. But so what no, do you, 23andMe what do you, doesn't say you have a likelihood. So what do you do with cancer. that information, Rodney? Like, it changes all the time. I mean, because as data is becoming updated. Yeah. So, like, I just, I look at it more for nutrition. So, like, um, 
like caffeine or Mm -hmm. my metabolism or types of food I should lean towards eating or not. But I, but, but I also am not flagged for anything, um, major. So if I was flagged for something major, I would take it. I would go to a doctor and be like, Hey, can we get, can I, can I get tested for this? That's interesting. Um, the, uh, so you, with five to 10%, do we know the other 90 to 95% of, of cause, uh, breast cancer causes or is that still kind of the unknown it's like the million dollar question so yeah. so let's talk about it so so there's three different categories so we have sporadic which means no family history the patient just develops breast cancer okay so that's going to be your 12 percent or your one in eight patients um across the country the average age for breast cancer is 61 62 okay so those patients are um you know that's you environment average age is 61 62 for breast cancer, yes. Okay. The average age across the country currently as of 2018 is 61, 62. Um, if you look at the American Cancer Society and you kind of look at the the mean age. So, when those patients that develop sporadic cancer, you do have to look at environmental. What are we putting in our body? What risk factors? What other comorbidities does the patient have? Um, and, and that's in that category. Then we go to the next category that is familial, which was puts a a patient um, in a 15 to 40% lifetime risk based on a family history that she will develop um, breast cancer. That could be related to a gene we don't know about yet. Um, that can also be related to environmental factors. There could be, there's something clearly in this family that is predisposing this woman to, to cancer. And sometimes we don't have all of those answers yet. Um, and then we look in the third column, which is the column that I specialize in, which is the hereditary column that, that we do know there is a gene that's attached to this patient, um, that is on a certain chromosome that, um, is amplifying this patient's risk for developing certain cancers. Um, and so that's kind of how we lie it out on, on the spectrum of sporadic, familial, or hereditary. So if a patient, if I say that she doesn't have hereditary cancer and I can test her and say that's negative, I go back then to my family history column and I look at what I can actually calculate and I look at the DNA as well. What, and I can tell her a number. Where do you fall in this 15 to 40% lifetime risk? I tell her what, what number she is based on her DNA. And that number tells me how I medically manage her. So if she has a greater than 20% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, she would then start getting mammogram and MRI every single year because she's at a greater than 20% risk. Um, if she's under 20% risk, then typically we start screening for mammogram 10 years prior to the first relative that was ever diagnosed. So American Cancer Society now states that women can wait till they're 45 to get their screening mammogram. Okay. But but if a woman has a family member that had breast cancer at 40, that woman actually she should start screening mammogram at 30. So oh, we have to look at long, the, her risk her risk her, uh, right. skyrockets. Right, absolutely. So we look at we do a risk calculation score. We look at what's called single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're called SNPs. And we also look at the Tyracusic. The Tyracusic is a risk model tool that calculates risk factors for women, relative risk, like um, postmenal menopausal obesity. What age did you start your period? Um, did you breastfeed? Doesn't really look into that one, but it looks into when did you have your first child? What is your uh, family history? Um, have you ever had any breast biopsies? Have you ever had hyperplasia of the breast? So we kind of calculate all of that score. And then we also calculate it with what's called the SNPs, 
we add those up together and then that gives us our that patient's lifetime risk of developing breast cancer based on her family history. So it's extremely sophisticated. So when you see some of these in-home tests that a woman can just like for eye color is another one that you can do um, in-home as well. When you look at those, um, you know, it's it, there's a lot of information that goes into it. It's not just here, spit in a tube and then and call it good and call it quits. Um, it, it's it's more sophisticated than that. You just mentioned um, menopause and breastfeeding and mm-hmm. those things and some of the questionnaires. I read uh, what the dog saw by I said what the yeah what the dog saw Malcolm Gladwell. He had a whole yeah chapter about um, birth control. Uh, menopause and cancer and I was like how are those things related but it breaks it down really really well Mm -hmm. Um, yes what is the rate this is something that um, we don't talk about a lot what is the rate of breast cancer in men because it's possible right yeah so 0.8 percent is it that low yeah Yeah. it's that low but if 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 we do know that um if there's a mutation in a male, that that male can and should be getting a mastectomy, there is some tissue there. So males are not excluded from this. I think that we think that it's more on the female side, which that's where it gets majority the of the uh, press attention. But men have family histories just like women do. So if a man has a family history of um, breast cancer and he meets criteria for testing, then he should be seeing somebody and get tested because he could have a mutation. So if let's say he has a BRCA mutation, he's at risk for pancreatic cancer. He's at risk for prostate cancer. He's at risk for breast cancer. And not only that, but if he has children, his children are also at risk that they have the, a mutation as well. So men are not excluded um, in the testing. And I think that they just think that they, they, you know, it's it's a woman issue. It's it's not a male issue, but that's that's incorrect. No, it's a it's and I appreciate your you know because it's it's one of these topics, especially for men. It's like oh, it's probably you know it's not a problem, but uh, you know at point at point eight percent, it's not not a statistically significant um, thing to consider. But as an individual, it could matter, um, and especially given the correlations to all the other forms of, of cancer that that these markers could could be an indicator for. Um, what is your recommended method for people to get tested for these? Is it just from their primary physician or what are your, what are your thoughts there? Um, yeah. So, you know, anybody can get this testing done if they collect the family history, if it's concerning that they're worried that, you know, there could be something, the criteria, you have to meet a certain criteria, which is very easy to meet because NCCN changes guidelines. They're the most current guidelines and it always, it's kind of ever changing. Um, You can go to your primary care doctor. And if if you bring this up, then, um, you know, they know if they don't do it within their clinic, they typically know where you go. There are certain breast, high risk breast clinics like IRAM, and the Polyclinic in Seattle, their hereditary cancer risk program for them. So there are programs that just focus on this. Um, one of my goals and something I, I do for Myriad is I go around the country and also help start up high-risk breast imaging centers. So if a woman goes through for a screening mammogram, we can catch her there at the mammogram and screen her there. So it really just kind of depends um, on Myriad's website. You can actually plug in your zip code um, and it can kind of tailor to providers in your area that can have the, um, who, who 
providers who are trained to have this conversation and discussion. So it really is. It's not hard. Okay, that's good to how, know. How did like how did you get into cancer? Like how how did you get into cancer? I don't think that's a, that's a, that's not a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did, you know that was my goal. I just wanted to get into cancer and just yeah, teasing yeah. yeah. Like most kids, I'm just into most it. Kids, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it was a hobby of mine as like a kid. This cancer yeah. thing is like really cool. No, it's um no seriously. Uh, my aunt and two out of my three cousins are BRCA one positive. So, um, like I said, I've seen the good and the bad of how these genes work. Um, and I've seen how we can prevent cancer and I've seen when, um, so my aunt's sister was diagnosed with breast cancer and her doc, her doctor, she was very young. She was like 43 when she was diagnosed wow. and he told her, you know, she had a unilateral mastectomy on just one side. And he said, you know, she brought up like the concerning family history and he's like, no, it does not come from the paternal side of the tree. It just comes from the maternal, which is a complete myth. Um, and so she just went on. And then when she was in her early fifties, she developed breast cancer on the other side and then colon cancer. Um, and then at that point, um, at, at that point I got involved. Um, and cause I was young when she got diagnosed the first time, but, um, at, at that point, um, she was genetically tested and found to be BRCA1 positive. Um, and so now she's, you know, her children are positive. My aunt is positive. My cousins are positive. Um, and so, like I said, when my aunt actually was tested, this was really bad. Um, but she was tested and I'm just going to leave it as to, she was tested in an area that should have caught it, but she was tested and she got a letter in the mail saying, Hey, by the way, uh, you have BRCA one, um, call this 1-800 number. Didn't explain anything about it. And, and then wrote about a two paragraph um, in that letter as well, talking about her high cholesterol, but just skimmed over the BRCA one. So my aunt I mean, calls I, me. When when was this, may I ask? Like, was this, this pre Jolie? Like, no, unfortunately, no. no. It's just been in the last like three years. I mean, even I know BRCA. Like, I, even I yeah. hear that, and I'm like, hey, you should probably get that looked at. Right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was one of those things where my aunt um, had no idea. She just got this letter in the mail, and she knew that this is something I specialized in. So she. Um, I call, my my father notified me and I called I called my aunt and um you know I coordinated her next steps for her and I got her in to see a specialist and she was done with childbearing so she elected to have a double prophylactic mastectomy and reconstruction and she also had a hysterectomy yeah. um and then and then I'm having my uh cousins uh managed right now so so yeah so it's it's really near and dear to my heart cuz I've seen what's happened when my you know one of the aunts was um missed and um is now having to live with you know colostomy and she's in and out of the hospital and it's just a really sad sad story um versus and and, and assisted living in her 50s now like mm. she needs total care versus the other side of my other aunt where we we identified the mutation before she developed cancer and now she's she's essentially free and clear um of breast and ovarian cancer but she's still you know, we still need to make sure that her, her pancreas is okay and other things, but um, at least we're able to remove that risk. Now, you've had cancer twice? I have, yeah. What, if you don't mind me asking, what uh, yeah. cancer? So, um, I, um, I have one daughter, uh, Mackenzie, who's 10. I'm very grateful for her. Um, and I was, I got pregnant with my second child. Um, and, um, actually ended up, 
um, it, um, it did not survive and, um, had him was going into for surgery because I thought I'd had a miscarriage. Um, ultrasound confirmed, you know, there wasn't anything there, but the ultrasound was quite concerning. Um, so they took me into surgery right away and then I got the pathology back and, um, my HCG levels, um, that you monitor sometimes in pregnancy, um, were really high and I ended up having what's called gestational trophoblastic disease. Um, and so I started chemotherapy and went through chemotherapy for two months. Um, and I was like 27, 28 when that happened wow. and then never, uh, was able to conceive after that. Um, and then when I was 32, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer, um, on actually had a false negative pap. My pap smear was negative and it showed a, the HPV virus, which I'd never had before. And so by guidelines, I technically didn't even need a procedure called a colposcopy, but my GYN was great and he did it anyways. And we caught the, um, cervical cancer. But so the next week I went in and had a total hysterectomy and, and that's where I lie. So, yeah, so I, it's very near and dear to my heart. So when we start getting into HPV vaccines, that's something I'm definitely very pro, um, HPV vaccine just because, um, you know, that can reduce the risk of cervical cancer by 90%. And it, uh, it just changed a few months ago, actually, in October, they've opened that vaccine up for insurance to cover it now for women that are 26 to 45. It used to be women from nine to 26 could get the vaccine. And now women um, 26 to 45 insurance is going to start paying for it as well. Is so firstly, thank you for sharing that. Um, that's tough. <clears throat> like, uh, been through that a little bit on on my side, um, so that's tough. Yeah, that's um, hard. <clears throat> um, on the HPV thing, we should we should talk about it a little bit. Um, I, if I recall, there's like like four strains, three or four sh- types of HPV, and the way it affects men and women is like completely, I think, completely different. But mm-hmm. um, like, could you give us a little? A little bit of schooling around HPV? Yeah, so it's a vaccination series of three vaccines over six months, unless you're between the ages of 11 and 12, and then you get two vaccines. It's called Gardasil 9, but it protects against the most aggressive strains of HPV. Um, And some of those, two of those strains are actually linked with um, not cervical, but genital warts. So 90% Mm -hmm. of the genital warts that we see. So men, yes, they can develop genital warts, but um, when we look at uh, HPV, the human papillomavirus, we know that strain 16 and 18 is the most aggressive strain that a woman can have on her cervix. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things that if a woman has that strain, it's very hard to clear that strain as well. A lot of the HPV viruses, the other what's called high risk types, um, it's a virus. So you can either completely clear that virus or it goes dormant or we can no longer pick it up on a screening pap smear. Um, but men don't show any signs and any signs or symptoms of the HPV virus, um, at all. And so, unless they have genital warts, which is like I said, that's more on the outside, not mm-hmm. the inside of the cervix, which is the issue. So, um, anyway, so yeah, so if a woman has unprotected sex with a man that has that virus, now she has, she's come into contact with that virus. But something that's not widely discussed is, you know, the oral sex component where, you know, there's the, a lot of the pediatricians there. It's ethical. They don't want to give the, the vaccine because they feel like it can encourage, you know, sexual behavior, which the studies don't prove that. 
Um, but also, you know, a lot of young girls will engage in oral sex and they think that that's okay because they're not really sexually active. Um, which is, which we have to actually think about if they're having oral sex with a guy, you can still get HPV in your mouth and your your throat. Yeah. Right. So just in, in the next five years, you guys are going to see, um, throat and mouth and like oral pharyngeal count cancer is going to far surpass cervical cancer. And just watch it. And the next five years will be like, remember that podcast that one day with that one girl? <laughs> but it's um, – so HPV strain 16, you are 22 times more likely to get oral pharyngeal cancer if wow. you have that strain. So – and and we, and we don't have a screening tool for that. We have this mouthwash that's called Cobras that we're looking into that can look for that. But there's not an early detection for, you know, unless pa- symptoms present. But the va- so the vaccine is only available for women. It's not for men, and only no, it's, for it's, is it for both? Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's, this isn't talked about. Like I, I've, I remember asking about it once, like in the end of college, and they were like, "No, no, no, no men don't use the vaccine." That, that was the answer I got. So the vaccine <clears throat> you said isn't distributed because they think it promotes sexual behavior. That, that's one of the, um, a lot of pediatricians, well, not a lot, but there's pediatricians okay. who believe that um, ethically, based on their own moral values, that, um, you know, if they, give the vac- if, if they give the vaccine, is it going to promote sexual behavior? Or if they have that conversation with the patient that's like 11 or 12, like, you know, we're going to give you this vaccine that can reduce the risk of cervical cancer and genital warts. My parents are like, I don't want this conversation to be taking place right now with my child. So, you know, for me, like my daughter's 10, I can tell you when she goes in for her well checkup um, next month, she's getting the, you know, the first Gardasil vaccination because, and it's, it's not something that's just offered. I think it should be something that should be just part of the series that they just say, you're getting your vaccination with your other vaccines, but it's something that's an option for the parents to get for these patients or not get. But we know that, you know, um, that population are, it's extremely sexually active, um, under 25. That's the, the biggest high risk group that we know of anyways. So we really need to be uh, more aggressive at, you know, having the conversations with patients and making sure that they get vaccinated. There's this thing in the U.S. like where it's like if we don't talk about it, then it's not true or it's not there. And like, mm-hmm. so if I don't talk to my 10 year old about um, cervical cancer or sex or like then it doesn't exist. Like or if I don't talk to her about racial situations then she won't see them and it's like no that's not true and like you're actually making it harder for her to navigate those when it comes up because she won't have she won't be prepared in my opinion that's that's my take i think what's interesting and i don't know if and i don't know a lot about the hpv vaccine or hpv in general probably by my own just you know non- non-engagement ignorance? with the topic. No, it's not even stigma. Mm-hmm. It's just non-engagement with the topic. No, I say ignorance. But, like you just don't know. Oh, ignorance. Yeah, totally. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, what's interesting about this, did this same thing happen within, um, uh, with the, the Hep B vaccine, which I find to be fascinating parallel to this because from what I understand, Hep B vaccine was issued or was, you know, supposed to be issued to ages, uh, you know, teenagers because they were the highest risk 
at the time when that, that vaccine came out, but it turns out they weren't going in and getting it. So now it is a, it's part of the schedule for infants, toddlers. Um, and in fact, in many cases, they just, it's, it's something they, they do right, right day one, uh, when you, when you come into, come into the planet. So I'm curious why HPV, when it's similar and in, you know, I guess arguably far more impactful depending on what the impact is of, of the virus and you get cervical cancer, why doesn't that follow the same path? I'm hoping that, you know, there, the CDC would mandate um, the HPV virus. I mean, at this, or vaccination. I think at this point, we know that the virus, you know, virus let's not promote that. Um, yeah, we don't want to mandate viruses. Yeah, let's, let's promote let's, it. Let's, it's, let's, it's all let's in the not. literature. It's all in the literature. Yeah, right? <laughs> For sure. So I think that, you know, if, if there was more of a push, um, there's recommendations. They recommend it, but it's not something that's mandatory. We know that, you know, 80 to 90% of women carry the virus now. Um, so coming across somebody who doesn't have it is, you know, rare. Um, so, but that's why we also know that cervical guidelines screenings have also changed because we know that women under 25, it's a really high sexual activity group and a high risk group. So cervical screening is not every year either, because if a woman has this virus, which majority of them do, um, if we just let their own immune system try to clear the virus and keep our hands out of it and let the body do what it's supposed to do, um, that these patients actually can clear the virus and those cells huh? on the cervix will actually go back to normal. So we have what's called a spe- special populations group. So women who have a pap smear between 21 uh, and 24 years old, those patients, if they have an abnormal pap smear and HPV, we give them one year to try to clear it. Um, and so a lot of those patients, when they come back a year later and get their pap smear, it's gone. And if they still have it, then we give them another year and we give them a little bit more time. We're watching them more carefully. But a lot of those patients, it reverts back to normal. We used to, you know, years ago, do more um, surgical procedures and procedures on these on these young girls instead of just letting their body cleared on its own. Um and, and it was coming into more complications. If you go and you, you remove part of the cervix, these women have a hard time getting pregnant with infertility. They're at risk for preterm labor, premature rupture of membranes. Um, there's lots of other complications that can take place when we start doing these procedures, which sometimes, especially in that younger population group, is not recommended. If I have a woman who's over the age of 25, though, who comes out with abnormal cells on her pap smear and HPV, Yes, that woman gets a colposcopy, and that's more of a diagnostic test that lets me know, um, does this woman need potentially those procedures I was talking about? So, so I think what's um, amazing about your path, and I, I, I want to touch on this to make sure that, that your story doesn't get missed in all of the amazing things that you are doing We'll talk about the Healing Hands Project a little bit too. But you found your way through medical school, um, but your your beginnings weren't uh, weren't the most optimistic. Weren't the most auspicious. No, I did not come from a. Um, I did not come. Um, I, I did not get raised in that type of, of household. That wasn't. I grew up very poor. Um, I put myself through. Um, undergraduate, graduate school. Um, my sister and I were the first two, um, 
people uh, in my family to ever um, go to college, let alone graduate. Um, and so, yeah, so I grew up extremely poor. Um, what, you know, what, is, mom, what is extremely poor? Um, extremely poor. So, uh, to describe what extremely, so poverty level, there's, there's homeless and then there's, there's very low income families. And mm-hmm. so what my mother would do is she, this is how poor we ate a lot of rice. Um, but she would at times, um, try to find enough change underneath the seat of her car to get a potato. Um, so she could cook my sister and I a potato to have food. Um, so when we talk about the severity of how poor my family was, um, my mother did everything she could to put food on the table or table for my, my sister and I, but you know, you look back at pictures when I was little and it's just, there wasn't a lot of smiles. You can see, I I didn't have the best, um, my mother did everything she could, but I, I didn't have the best upbringing, um, as far as my childhood goes. Um, but I always just wanted to just do more. I didn't want to go down that path and I wanted to, um, I wanted to leave a mark on this world in a positive way, um, and kind of create history in a lot of different ways for women while I'm here. Um, and I think part of that leans on my faith, but so, so yeah, so I, I grew up, um, a very low income family, um, non educated family, um, and, um, I worked at, I think I may have talked to you guys about this before, but I worked at Carl's Jr. was really, really bad yeah. at the drive-thru. Uh, <laughs> so I, I worked, I was so bad. So I worked, uh, at the drive-thru. And so every time we drive by, my daughter always is like, mom, do you want to stop by? I'm like, no, just we're going to keep driving because no, I've ate enough burgers there to last me a lifetime. Um, but yeah, so I, I worked at the Carl's, at Carl's Jr. and undergrad and went to school full time to try to pay my bills. Um, and just kind of work up the chain. I actually started, um, as a certified nursing assistant. So there's different levels of nursing. And so you kind of start at the bottom, essentially of, uh, degree level and then you kind of work your way up. So, um, you know, I reached the height of as far as you can go in my field. Um, but you have a completely different respect for, for the certified nursing assistants or the medical assistants that are doing that backbreaking work or working in a nursing home, because I've been there, that's really tough work. And I think you, you treat people very differently and it's much more humbling. Um, and to, to, to have started there and to work your way up the ladder when people are constantly trying to pull you down, uh, you just keep climbing. So that's essentially what I did. I would like to touch on that, but I wanted to add, you just glossed over something that's probably important, your faith. What does that mean to you? Like, what is your faith? What does it mean to you? How does it, how has it helped you in that journey or in this journey that you're on? I should say, it's not like it's over. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a faith based, I, you know, um, I go to a non-denominational church, but I do have a strong, uh, faith base. Um, I, um, you know, my mother grew up in a Baptist church, um, in South Georgia. And so she instilled that in me. Um, you know, I honestly didn't get baptized till I was 30. One of the reasons why I didn't get baptized is because I always kept always feeling like I had to be like this perfect person in God's eyes. And then I just realized that, you know, in my, my upbringing, what I believe is that God didn't come down to this earth um, for the perfect person, you know, he came down for the people that he just wants a relationship with. And so I just kind of threw all that away and just, you know, turn my, 
turned my life towards Christ um, and just relied on him for for everything in my life. And I, I believe God puts um, you in directions for a reason and nothing happens by accident. Um, you know, the healing hands was created based on God being the ultimate um, healer. I'm just his hands. Um, so I feel like Christ works through me every day as far as when I'm sometimes talking to a patient, like, you know, just things come through, through me that, um, I come to a diagnosis quickly and I think there's science and there's art of medicine. I think the art of medicine also has to come into that faith base. It adds another layer to that provider. Not everything I believe in my heart is science. I've come to diagnoses on patients that, um, have been missed and missed and missed, but you just, um, number one, I think you have to listen to your patients, but truly I think part of it is also my, my faith and, and God and just what I believe in. How? Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you. How have you, like, what is it about growing up for you that has, I mean, you said you always had this this connection to to obviously your faith and to wanting to leave a mark on this world. But to have that and do it are two different things. Like given the the nature of how you grew up, like how did you manage to 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 just persevere and make it work? Like what is that? Like is there is there something is it is it just innate to who you are? Or was it how you were raised? I, I'm just curious to to understand that because it's not easy for everybody. When I was 18, I was just like looking at a small town life and was just like, I don't want this for myself. I don't want to struggle. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to ever have my daughter go through the childhood that I had um, because you know I, I just I wanted more for her and I wanted to set that example for her. So when I got into when I was a freshman in um, in college, um, I was excelling in college and I was just slowly realizing that like, I was really, really smart with certain things. And I have stayed in that wheelhouse ever since I was 18. Um, I've never left that wheelhouse and I've never stopped being in school since then. When you started, when you realized like you had an affinity to pick up certain things was it hard for you to accept that and like be okay with it or were you once you got it you got it and you were just off running like cool i got it. i'm gonna go i kept it quiet and i still think i'm really like when i'm on stage it's um or i'm nationally speaking like i can speak to a crowd and I have this confidence, but you know, honestly, when I'm not at work, I'm, I'm much of a homebody. It's weird to say, but I'm much of an introvert, which you wouldn't see by all the things that I do. But when I'm not nationally speaking or doing all these things or, or practicing or all the different things I'm doing with the healing hands, I'm at, I'm at home. I'm a mother. I just, I really like my alone time. Um, I spend a lot of time at home. Um, and so I was really shy about it. Um, I had a lot of support from some really great professors, but I was, um, I was different than the rest of my family. I was always kind of the black sheep. And so, um, 
I would get actually negativity and of like, oh, you want to be better than other people or mm. you think you're better than other people and, you know, you think you're more righteous. And, and it was that sort of negativity. And that's when that actually or I had a, a actually a, a teacher, an English teacher when I was a freshman in high school tell me, you'll never even graduate school. You're so dumb. And just the negativity from an English teacher. Wow. And I actually so, had a teacher. I mean, I've, I've yes, had so many people I've yes. heard. You actually had a teacher yeah. tell you that. Yes. And so, so I guess all the negativity that I received from, um, people that knew me, certain friends, family members, my own father, certain teachers when I was younger, just was my, honestly, it just fueled my fire. Like, I really love if somebody tells me I can't accomplish something because all I want to do is just turn around and give them the middle finger and just keep going. You don't clearly do that, but that's what I feel inside of just like, okay, well, watch me. Right. It's like, well, then watch me. And so everything I've ever been told you're not going to accomplish, I have accomplished. Um, you know, being on the board of directors for a national organization, I'm one of the youngest members on the board. Yeah. I was going to um, ask you about that. It's because it's just this never ending, like people tell you there's no way you would be accepted on the board. You're too young. You're not accomplished enough. You haven't done this or this or this. And so that's when you keep climbing the ladder and the more people are going to continue to pull you down, but you just, you just continue to stay true to yourself and you just persevere and you just don't look back and you don't listen to the negativity. I keep my circle of support um, and mentors and leadership very close and tight. And the people that I trust and are mentors for me, I lean on them for that never ending support. And I think that's where I also lean on my faith is when I feel like I'm struggling with something is just honestly, I just pray about it. And I just, um, do get overwhelmed with just a, a amount of comfort of just knowing that I am staying true to who I am and I'm staying true to leaving this mark on this world in, in a positive way. And just, you have to tune out all that negativity or you're never going to achieve your, your dreams if you start focusing on what other people are saying besides what your own heart is telling you to do. So do you still have a relationship with your family? <laughs> some of them. No, I don't. Um, I don't have a relationship with my father. I mean, I really haven't had one since I was 18. He was a really awful person. Um, that's my mom and my grandfather. My grandfather honestly pretty much raised me. Um, I took care of him until he passed away. When I, when I got, when I got pregnant with that second child, my grandfather had passed away like two weeks prior. Oh. Um, but my, I mean, my grandfather was my rock. He pretty much raised me. He helped my mother pay for things for me to like have a coat. Um, and he was, I sat next to him until, um, I left to actually go take a shower when he took his last breath. And that's the hospice. Like sometimes that's the person they need you to leave so they can know it's okay to just pass away. But he walked me down the aisle at my wedding. And, um, my grandfather was honestly like, he was my biggest supporter. And he was just an amazing, amazing man. So he was by far like the best person in my life. And I think I do part of it for him, honestly, is just because um, he was such an inspiration to me. And I just feel like I know that he's um, in heaven and I know that he's looking down and just so, so proud of what I'm doing. And so when I feel like that, um, that struggle of other people and the negativity, I just have to turn around and just know that, no, this is... I know who I am and I know, I know what I'm trying to do for my daughter. And I just try to stay as focused as I can on that. But I don't really have, um, I don't, there's a lot of family I can say I don't have a relationship with just because of when you grow up really poor and then you actually make a name for yourself. 
um, you do come out of the woodwork. Yeah, you kind of get that pull of what you you think you're better. No, it's that I'm just uh, I just I just never stopped with um, trying to achieve my dreams. So you mentioned something about bringing humanity back into the world. So I want to talk about like the Healing Hands Project and what you're doing there. And um, you're on the on your website. You're you're listed as a menstrual hygiene expert. And I giggled or chuckled while I said that because I, I'm uncomfortable even just reading it because. I don't even know what that means. And uh, so, like, let's talk about the project. Let's talk about menstrual hygiene. Let's get let's get into yeah. it. Let's two men and a gal talk about vaginal hygiene. Let's talk about yeah. – That's the, yeah. that's the new podcast. Periods. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's talk about some periods. No, yeah. so the Healing Hands is um, – so, yeah, it's a nonprofit that uh, was founded – that I found uh, – it was founded last year, essentially, is when we kind of launched um, in 2018, the spring of 2018. Um, it was – I had done research for two years on the homeless population prior to that um, launch. Um, and it's just kind of taken off from there. We're a 501c3 approved nonprofit, which we just received um, in October. Um, and so it's definitely a, a lot of work um, that was kind of built up to kind of get to this level. But yeah, it was something that um, when I moved to Seattle in 2016, that I, um, I had a Part of my daughter, honestly, was the the drive behind the Healing Hands project and just the, um, you know, my daughter, I feel I always call her an old soul, but she just has a bleeding heart, um, which is great. She's very great. She's a bleeding heart on one end, but on the other end, she says she wants to be an attorney for <laughs> her career. But there's like no attorneys in our family. So it's really weird. I'm like, yeah, like she's hilarious, but she did. She was the reason behind um, you know, the, the healing hands project, as far as, um, when we were living, we were living straight up downtown Seattle on Olive and eighth, which is like smack dab mm-hmm. downtown. Yeah. No, um, no. yeah, we were living in a high rise apartment there and, um, we were, you know, leaving dinner. We were actually at dinner one night when she, um, you know, didn't want to eat the rest of her meal and she just wanted it to go. Um, and we were actually leaving that restaurant when, um, Along the streets in Seattle, there's a lot of people just sitting on the streets, a lot of homeless population. And so there was a woman that was sitting there and Mackenzie had must have seen her from where she was sitting um, at the restaurant, but she packaged up her meal. And then when we left and we're walking down the street, she stopped and gave her food to this, this woman. Um, and I was just um, kind of get that warm, proud mom moment that you're, you're doing things right and uh, raising your child. Cause I think as a mom, we always, a working mom, you always have so much guilt as far as, you know, like trying to balance work and life. Um, but it, it was a really a pivotal moment for me. I was able to take a step back and be like, wait, I need to look into this. And so then I started talking with women on the street that were homeless and asking them, you know, what do you have access to? Um, what products do you use when you're on your period? And I was overwhelmed with the amount of um, answers I was getting from what are they using to they don't really have access to a lot of different products. And then I just started researching the population for a couple of years before we launched in 2018 and then kind of developed the Healing Hands Project. So we work with the different shelters in Seattle. Um, we've actually brought that down to Eastern Washington as well. Um, but we either work with shelters or like fem- feminine hygiene like centers, like where they can go and shower and wash their clothes. Um, and so that's where our kits are located at. And so, you know, our kits don't just have tampons and pads, but they have tampons and pads appropriate for flow, um, meaning like how heavy the period is to sometimes pads, because sometimes women don't want tampons. 
Um, I also created what's called the V booklet, which is like a. I love it. I love it. I just love V. I think V should be on everything, but um, but so it's called the V booklet, but it just talks about basic feminine hygiene. So it's really basic, like how often do you change your tampon and how do you even insert a tampon sort of thing or how do you get clean or how do you dispose of, of a tampon? So it's really kind of basic. We also include, you know, underwear. A lot of these women, that's a that's something that they absolutely do not have and they are so appreciative of that. Um, we include ibuprofen, hand sanitizer, disposable wipes and, you know, a disposable bag that's, um, uh, you know, eco-friendly that they can actually put it in their used products in and they're able to dispose of them correctly. So it's a really unique kit um, just for the fact that it has enough essentials to get a woman through an entire period for a month. Um, and a lot of it actually lasts longer than a month, but we kind of researched like how many should be put in to like last a really heavy period. If she has a light period, it could probably last if maybe she's that person who has like two periods a month, it can last a couple periods. So, so we, so we distribute these to different shelters as well as we kind of, we've gone to some different schools in Seattle and I've talked about the healing hands, but also just like basic menstrual hygiene and just talking about periods. Cause I think a, a lot of, a lot of young girls don't know much about uh, just basic uh, period health um, and tampon use and, and how to change it or what one to use and, and that basic stuff. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of how the healing hands started. And then we work with the tampon tax as well of trying to eliminate that, which Washington is definitely lacking behind. So Rachel, thank you so much for taking this time out. You're extremely busy. Uh, as we just talked about, uh, you, you're doing the single parent thing. And so we really appreciate you taking this time with us. And to wrap up, we'd like to ask, how would you, how would you challenge anybody listening to evolve their thought or um, to, to better themselves going forward? Like, what, what would you leave them with? Um, I mean, honestly, that's such a, I don't have very much time, but I think just perseverance. So just making sure that you always persevere and um, just listen to your heart and follow your dreams and just never stop because it's amazing what you can accomplish. And I don't think wisdom comes with age. I think that we're, we're granted wisdom. And so you can be extremely young and be ambitious and have so much wisdom and just continue to persevere and follow your dreams because um, you're going to accomplish them. It's just um, you have to stay true to your heart and stay true to yourself and just never give up. And so that's um, that would be the best advice I could give. 